Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have two guests today, Joel A. Tickner. He's a professor at the Zuckerberg College of Health Sciences. And I have Alicia M. McCarthy. Uh, she's part of, she's a cleaning laboratory specialist at TURI. And TURI stands for Toxics Use Reduction Institute. So thank you both for coming. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, tell me about TURI. What's the goal of the organization? What do you guys do? Well, Tory or the Toxics Use Reduction Institute was set up under a 1989 law in Massachusetts called the Toxics Use Reduction Act, which essentially requires two things. It requires manufacturing firms to understand what toxic chemicals are using and how they're using them and, and how they're being converted into products or put into waste or emissions. Every two years, they have to do a plan for how they're going to reduce their use of those toxic chemicals. And they pay a fee on chemicals that then funds an institute at UMass Lowell called the Toxics Use Reduction Institute, which works with companies and communities to essentially find better alternatives to chemicals of concern that they're using in their production processes to find ways to reduce the use of those chemicals and then ultimately their emissions into the environment. Well, I've heard that, um, I mean, there's millions and millions of different chemicals out there and 90 some odd percent of them at least are not on any list, you know, being a known carcinogen or a known problem. So do you guys feel like you operate in a very small sublist or what's your thoughts or, or are most of the, the dangerous chemicals ac- accurately cataloged and are known? 
Yeah, it's it's hard to know how many of those are in, you know, the, the estimate is there's somewhere between 30,000 and 100,000 chemicals in commerce today. In Massachusetts, companies are required to report on about a thousand different chemicals that are on federal lists and a state list. So do we have all the chemicals? No, we don't. We know that we're missing certain chemicals and we're going through current lists of chemicals that are in products uh, that might be of concern. But I think what's important here is the work to address some of the most problematic chemicals that we've seen in Massachusetts. For example, chlorinated solvents like trichloroethylene, which is the chemical that was of concern in the movie um, A Civil Action in Woburn, Massachusetts. It contaminated the, the drinking water wells in, this, in the city, uh, which uh, led to a cluster of uh, childhood leukemia in the city. But really what we do is we focus not on how bad the chemicals are, but how we actually find better alternatives to those. So take TCE, which is one of the most common chemicals found in hazardous waste sites, trichloroethylene. 30 years ago, we said we need to find better alternatives, alternatives that worked well for industry, but that didn't contaminate waterways and wells. And we did that. We reduced the use of trichloroethylene in Massachusetts by almost 90%. At the same time, the EPA at the federal level was studying how bad TCE is. 30 years ago, we knew trichloroethylene was uh, a cancer-causing chemical. Uh, EPA at the federal level now is just finishing, about three years ago, its assessment of how bad trichloroethylene is. And now they're working on regulating trichloroethylene. We did that 30 years ago because we focused on the fact that we knew it was in hazardous waste sites. We knew it contaminated water. We knew it was toxic. Let's just figure out a better way to clean metal parts that doesn't use this dangerous chemical. And I definitely think the lab plays a major role in helping a lot of businesses move away from these hazardous chemicals too. It was actually established in 1993 and it was meant for companies to be able to work with us in the lab to be able to actually take their parts that they were using in their process, their contaminants, and actually testing to find alternatives for them. Because what we ended up finding was that a lot of these companies lack the bandwidth to be able to really take time to research safer alternatives, and they need that education. And that's kind of where Turi and the lab come together to be able to help them. What's your surveillance look like? I would think it would have to be massive. And, you know, I mean, you're looking at tons of different chemicals and different industries. And, you know, when you yeah. So what's your surveillance like? And when you make a recommendation, do you just say, don't use that? Or do you say, use this instead? And here's where to get it. So it's very unique to process, even within a community setting. If we're working with people who are just looking to switch out a safer disinfectant, you have to look at how the people are actually using it. So we may actually go on site, see their process. We see how they're using it. And we look at the information that's out there. We talk to different vendors. We actually assess and look at the environmental health and safety of those alternatives. And we try and say, is this safer than what they're using and try to get them to the safest option that still works for them and is cost effective. And it's really important that we focus on not just getting rid of the bad, but how do we evaluate what we're moving towards? And we've had too many cases where we had this knee-jerk reaction. We got to get rid of this. Um, An example would be BPA or bisphenol A, which was used in those hard plastic water bottles, like a Nalgene bottle and and all the concern about BPA. And then all these companies switched, you know, they got rid of BPA. You had these ads from Camelback 
you know, no more BPA. And then you'd ask them, what did you switch to? We don't know. It's not BPA. And it turned out it was a similar chemical called BPS, which is just as toxic. So we do need to be careful about jumping from the frying pan into the fire and having processes to evaluate those alternatives. So that's been really key to Turi's work, which is make sure it works and make sure it's safer. Well, how do you, you know, what constitutes uh, safety or danger? Like, you know, how many factors do you look at? What kind of factors? Yeah, I mean, it depends. But typically what we'd look at is a number of toxicological endpoints. There's a lot of tools out there to be able to evaluate alternatives. So we'd want to know, you know, it's not hundreds, right? I mean, it could be anywhere from, you know, it's not one factor. It could be anywhere from six different criteria to 20 different criteria you're looking at. It depends on the complexity of the problem and it depends on the tool you're using. So we developed a tool at uh, Turi called P2 Oasis, which looks at about, you know, 12 or 13 different criteria from toxicity to ozone depletion to climate impact and allows in a fairly robust but easy way for companies to see what they're trading off because there's no perfectly safe alternative, but you want to know what factors you might be trading off. What tend to be some of the trade-offs that you've observed? I know when it comes to aqueous cleaners, when we're switching someone from a solvent-based cleaner to an aqueous one, uh, we've noticed a trend where a lot of the aqueous ones may have more ecotoxicity. And it, it really depends on talking to the companies to ensure that they have the proper engineering controls. So having the right equipment that can protect those things that they don't have spills and making sure that it works for their facility. I guess there's, yeah, there's a lot of factors that like you want to keep the people that work with the chemicals safe from inhalation or other hazards. Then when they get out into the, you know, when the chemicals get out into the environment, how do they affect, you know, various uh, areas that get dumped in? The products that are created, do the chemicals stay in the products and can they cause users of the products harm? I mean, I, I guess there's many, many different areas you got to look at, right? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, it's yeah. complex. Um, go ahead, Alicia. Literally going to say the same thing. It's a complex and a not a simple thing, which is something that was really surprising going into this field work is just people look at this and think that it's such an easy switch to go from one to another, but you really have to deep dive so you don't have those regrettable alternatives. I mean, let me give you an example. Sometimes we use the word sustainable. So in the renewable energy world or renewables world, uh, it's more sustainable. So I was at a factory that's making a really cool packaging material out of a mushroom fungus. And it's really amazing. And they go in the factory and you have the workers just taking handfuls, scoops of this stuff. And, you know, you would ask the question, is it biologically active? Well, we cook the material and then it kills the fungus. But then in the workplace, the workers were just taking scoops of this stuff and then putting into molds. 
in their in their um, breathing space without any respiratory protection. So so you have to think about these things in a very integrated way. Um, some of the alternative cleaning materials that that Alicia is working with, they may require a different way of working that you know from the uh, traditional ones because. They, you have to scrub differently. Well, that might pose an ergonomic hazard and you might need a different way to apply it because it doesn't work the same way. So that's a lot of the, the effort we put in is the adoption side. It, it's, you know, there may be an alternative, but you got to adopt it in a way that doesn't cause more harm than good. And I definitely yeah, think how, too- how often, how often can you solve the problem with better ventilation, better cleaning practices, better- you know, worker hygiene versus replacing a chemical altogether? So it really depends, again, on the process that we're looking at. But there have been times that we actually even went further upstream in their process. And it could be that we end up changing out the type of oil or grease that they're using if we're looking in an industrial setting, where by doing that, we can actually find either a physical way of removing the contaminant that they're trying to clean off, or it could even be a, a safer cleaner in general that's more chemical that that is safer for them. So you don't have to stick to the bounds of to which you're you're assessing, just being the cleaning step of let's remove, you know, this dirt from this substrate. Uh, you can actually start thinking all ways of the process and how you can fix it going upstream. And the last thing you want to do, right, both pollution prevention and industrial hygiene, which is the field of workplace health and safety, you know, we have this hierarchy and the top of that hierarchy is eliminate the hazard in the first place, because we know that both engineering controls and personal protective equipment can fail. So by eliminating the hazard in the first place, you eliminate the problem. Uh, You know, I'll give you an example, you know, the analogy that's often played is lions in a zoo, right? To have lions in a zoo, you've got to have all sorts of safety systems around them and but those safety systems can fail and every once in a while a lion gets out and kills someone well if you're using lambs instead lambs still can pose hazards right they eat up hillsides but they don't kill you and so you you find ways to eliminate the hazard and then control as much of the remaining hazard as possible where do you find the the i guess the lowest hanging fruit to make an intervention is it usually in the workplace or is it uh, is it upstream from there when the stuff's first made yeah, I mean, again, that depends. The ideal scenario is you move upstream and change the chemistry in the first place, right? That's the field we call green chemistry. Um, it's the design of the molecule that is inha- inherently less hazardous, right? So, you know, water is less hazardous inherently than a chemical that we typically use in dry cleaning called perchloroethylene, which is a bladder carcinogen, right? So I can close loop perchloroethylene, right? I can I can make sure that when it goes into the dry cleaning machine, it doesn't escape there and I can capture it and bring it back around. But why would I put all that in, right? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Laws of thermodynamics say somewhere that perchloroethylene is going to get out of the system. Why would I do that when water is inherently non-toxic, right? Perchloroethylene is inherently a carcinogen. Okay. So to the extent we can redesign the molecules, redesign the system in the first place, um, then, then we can, then, then we eliminate the hazard altogether, or we even consider whether that chemical is necessary 
for a particular function. Maybe we don't even need it. Maybe we can just redesign the process or redesign the activity and eliminate the need for the chemistry altogether, which is what we're finding with some flame retardants. We can create a, an inherently flame retardant material, for example, for couches or textiles that doesn't need a flame retardant in the first place that could escape you know, and end up in dust in your home. How often are you dealing with new chemicals versus existing ones that are just used in a million different industries? A lot of the companies that I've worked with thus far, there's these legacy chemicals, especially the halogenated solvents that we've been seeing over and over and over again. And I think that's where even Joel brings up the green chemistry. It's really important because even some of the alternatives that we're seeing are not what we want to recommend. So there's a need for putting safer chemistries out there and new formulations instead of just rebranding them, putting a new name on them and putting them back out. So I think there's definitely this need to to definitely try and reformulate different safer options. I mean, what we've found is, so I, in addition to the work I do with Turi, I co-direct a network of about 120 companies called the, the Green Chemistry and Commerce Council, which brings together retailers, brands, and, and chemical manufacturers. And you know, if you look at how many new chemicals we see ending up at scale, replacing the the chemicals we're concerned about, not many. You know, if you look at what's on the market today, about 95% by volume were on the market in 1976 when our national policy on chemicals called the Toxic Substances Control Act came into effect. Because there's barriers in that system, right? The The incumbent chemicals, the ones that we're trying to replace are highly, they, they work well, they're cheap, they're highly capitalized, right? We have all the manufacturing processes for them, which then makes it hard to switch out of them. And um, because it's going to cost money, it's going to take reformulation, it's going to take uh, the whole value chain from manufacturer to retailer to collaborate around it. And that creates a set of barriers that make the, the new entrants hard to get to scale. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so you said 90 to 95% of the chemicals out there have been in use for almost 50 years? Yep. Yep. By volume about that. So new chemicals that have come on that have replaced uh, those that we're concerned about, small, small numbers uh, in an overall volume. What What's positive, though, about this is we're finishing some research now that shows that clearly the greener options, so if you take consumer products like cleaners or uh, other uh, dishwashing detergent, the greener options, the ones with safer chemicals that are either labeled or certified as safer, they're growing at a significantly faster rate in the marketplace than the traditional incumbents. They're, they're small in the percentage of the market that share they hold, but they're growing much faster, which is why companies like Unilever are buying companies like seventh generation because they see that's where their future market growth lies. I would think if if uh, chemicals have been around in the same industrial processes for 40, 50 years, they should be very well understood and alternatives should, I don't know, I mean, that's a very long time for alternatives to come up and be implemented. So why is there still so much legacy use of all this stuff? Well, Alicia, what's the, you should talk about the challenges you're finding with some of the, the replacements for the solvents and cleaning and degreasing operations. Yeah, um, I know, especially with certain companies, they have what's known as a piece of equipment called a vapor degreaser. And a lot of them still have these types of equipment that really need specific types of solvents that 
like the halogenated solvents that we see that work in that. And so they'd have to wait out the lifespan of that equipment. But a lot of the other alternatives that we're seeing are either, you know, uh, different types of halogenated solvents, or they may have mixtures of different types of chemistries that aren't as safe or switch off those different types of hazards that, you know, now they may need to have more inhalation safety for a specific thing, or it could be more flammable. And flammability is a major one because some of the equipment that they already currently have may not work with flammable solvents or even uh, certain other types of And I think that's the same for other sectors is that you're already, you're already set up to make things a certain way using certain equipment. And there's cost to that change and the the inertia to make that change is high, right? Because there's cost and who's going to pay that cost and where are those costs going to be shared along the value chain. So you might have, and we know major retailers are establishing important chemicals policies where they're saying the chemicals they want to get rid of in the products they're putting on their shelves. But at the same time, if the message is we want it safe and sustainable, but we're not going to pay anymore, that does not necessarily lead to better options being developed or put into the products because somewhere someone's got to pay the cost of that. And I think there's also a misconception of how some of these alternatives actually work. I know when I've worked with certain clients before, they were turned off by aqueous cleaners because they thought and saw that these aqueous cleaners were actually getting dirty, which when using solvents, they would think that it wasn't working as well, or they'd have to add more of that chemistry. When aqueous cleaners were completely different, they can look dirty, but they'll keep working for a long period of time. So that's also partial education too, for any of the clients that we work with. So that way they don't see it and treat it as if they were working with the solvent. They're looking at these safer mixtures and relearning how to use them properly. Where's the, um, I mean, what does the legislative impetus look like over the past 50 years? Has it gotten a lot stronger to stamp these things out? Did it not exist at all for a bunch of years? It's changing over time. I mean, the the impetus in the U.S. is definitely coming from the states. Programs like the Toxics Use Reduction Act in Massachusetts or programs in California, Washington, Oregon, Maine are really leading the way. And that's been the history of the U.S. and environmental policy. The states tend to be the innovators, which then hopefully drives federal policy. Our federal policy on chemicals, which is called the Toxic Substances Control Act, has been a little bit behind the times. Um, There was an update to it in 2016, but it's not matching the level of ambition that the states have or that Europe has. So the European Union just published last year a new chemical strategy that builds on a policy for regulating chemicals that was already a decade ahead of the US. And they're bringing together now chemicals, but also waste, right? Because we want our products at the end of their life to be turned back into products, right? And if we have dangerous chemicals in them, that messes around with recycling and reuse. So so they're really linking climate waste and chemicals all together to seek more sustainable solutions. We've got a long way to go in the States. We had worked for 14 years on a piece of legislation that was just passed in January called the Sustainable Chemistry Research and Development Act. It's a mom and apple pie piece of legislation which says White House pulled together an interagency committee to better coordinate federal activities in supporting research and development of sustainable, safer chemistries. took 14 years to get that passed. 
and it doesn't even have money attached to it. It's just government come together to drive better chemicals. Because what we found is it's much easier to get alignment on the direction we want to go, which is safer, more sustainable, innovation-oriented than to try and fight the battles over what we want to avoid and get rid of, right? Because there are companies that make those chemicals and those chemicals make them money. So, so of course, change is difficult, but if we're focused on the direction we want to go, it becomes much easier to move in that direction. So, I mean, what's, what are some of the metrics that you gauge success by? Is it number of people sickened? Is it, uh, I don't know, number of product liability suits? I mean, how do you know that you're doing something that's effective? Well, I hope it's not by number of people sickened, right? So um, we don't have good metrics. Actually, the state of Massachusetts probably has the best metrics that exist uh, in terms of measuring success of toxics reduction, because we have data that are collected on an annual basis from about 600 manufacturing firms in the state on their toxic chemical use. So we can measure trends over time. We can measure that because of the Massachusetts program, um, use of toxics has gone down by 40% in the state of Massachusetts. And we've done the analysis to show that companies have saved money doing that. Um, we don't have those kinds of data. Uh, you know, having good data on chemical impacts and health, those are difficult because w- we often in epidemiology can't make those causal associations that chemical A causes disease B. You know, we can see what's called body burden. We can see the levels of chemicals in our bodies and see whether a specific action reduces the levels of those chemicals in our body. The most successful example being the removal of lead from gasoline. We could see a precipitous drop of lead in people's blood as a result of removing lead from gasoline. Um, So we can measure those trends, but we don't do it very well right now. Okay. Is, is that part of your mandate is to develop metrics to determine if what you're doing is working or is it just there's too much to do and you just got to focus on the actual doing to worry about that part? Well, I think in Massachusetts, we have that annual data, right? That data are how we're measuring success. But um, for example, one of the most important chemicals policies we know in the country is uh, California Prop 65, right? The, the law that requires that products that contain reproductive toxicants or carcinogens be labeled. Um, Everyone knows that Prop 65 known to the state of California is causing cancer or reproductive harm. But there was never even good data on whether Prop 65 was leading to a reduction in toxic chemical use in, in California. There's a new study that just came out looking at the impact of Prop 65. And the, the evaluation was the, the impacts are not necessarily measurable in terms of actual chemical data because we don't have great chemical data, but they're measurable in terms of the, the way that, that it shifted the, the industry, right? That industry saw the need to get out of those chemicals because they didn't really want to label their product as having a carcinogen in them. And that's a kind of shift that we can see. We can't quantify it. But I can tell you over the last five years, I've seen an enormous shift in the way the chemical industry is relating to product manufacturers and responding to the the demands of product manufacturers and retailers for safer chemicals. Five to 10 years ago, they push back and defend the chemistry. And now they're saying, how do we work together to solve these problems? 
it's a different uh, it's a different landscape and but i think we do need much better data and as i said in this economic analysis we're doing that's something we're finding is we don't have great data to make that economic case and we need better data but i think to definitely see the reduction in what we're doing for some of these hazardous chemicals is because these companies in Massachusetts have to report on how much they're using in pounds, we can actually look at some of these larger use companies and be able to assist them to remove that number of pounds from their company. So we can start seeing it being used less. Uh, We just had a great collaboration with the Minnesota Office of Technical Assistance where they actually aimed and we just finished recently to reduce 300,000 pounds of trichloroethylene. So from from at least four different companies in Minnesota. And we're doing those same things here in Massachusetts and we're just teaching different organizations to do what we do in the lab with other companies in other states. And you can you can apply that to even the public as well on how to teach them how to find safer alternatives. Yeah, speaking of which, that's what I want to ask you is the last item is uh, what, what resources are there for the public and for businesses that are using, you know, various processes and solvents, you know, if, if they want to change what they're doing, it's either to come into compliance or to improve what they're doing. Where can they go and find out more? So I know with the lab, we actually certify and test the performance for Safer Choice, Green Seal, and Eco Logo certification. So for the public, for someone who's a consumer going down in the grocery store, you can actually look for those specific labels to be able to know that those are a safer option for you to switch to for your cleaner. And for anyone that's an industry for a great starting point, the lab actually has a publicly available database called Cleaner Solutions, where all of our test data is open to the public to look at, to try and find an alternative. And we try and share uh, best practices through case studies as well. So that's also a place to go even on our website. And we also have that tool that Joel mentioned, P2A's Pollution Prevention Options Analysis System, to be able to take a safety data sheet which you can find online or ask the vendor and start going through as a starting point. And then we actually have resources of verified databases that they can go to to fill in that information to get a general idea of where the hazards are and if something is safer to switch to. And there's a lot of consumer-facing tools that um, uh, nonprofit groups have. Uh, Silent Spring Institute, which is based in Massachusetts, has one called Detox Me, which gives you ideas of what to avoid. The Environmental Working Group for Chemicals and Cosmetic Products has the cosmetics database, which allows you to look up a product and see whether it is has problem chemicals in it or safer chemicals. So I think what you're going to start seeing much more as we get more data are, are savvy uh, advocacy groups using that information and then creating apps or other ways that you can go to the store with a barcode reader and just see whether it contains problem chemicals in it. it may not tell you about safer, but it'll at least tell you what you want to avoid. And then as Alicia said, these these labels like Safer Choice, which is the EPA, is the US EPA, a trusted label that everyone you know believes in, is is one that you can just go to your store and say, hey, this has been verified by government to be have the safest available chemicals. Okay, well, very good. All right, well, I appreciate both of you coming, and I know you have a uh, a job that's never ending. But uh, you know, thank goodness that there's places like you that do this. So, thank you very much for being here. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. 
You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.